Welcome back to the Millennial Mindspace podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host and creator of the show, Tyler Steer, and I'm really excited that you're here. Just wanted to jump in and do a little bit of a welcome quickly because in recording the interview today, there was a small error and my welcome speech got cut out. So just welcoming you now to the show. Have a great time. Enjoy and talk to you soon. Really, really stoked to have you here. Thanks for joining us and uh, really excited to introduce my next guest or guests today, uh, my parents, Mel and Nick. Say hello. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Tyler. Awesome. So we've got them on the podcast today hoping to really give a bit more insight into what it's like parenting someone going through a mental health crisis and how that affects their own mental health and, and the way they deal with that. So really excited to give a bit of perspective to some of our other listeners who were potentially going through a, a similar scenario of having to support someone going through a mental health crisis. And uh, as, a, as a little side note, sorry if I sound a little bit stuffy at all, I have been a little bit sick, so apologies, but I'll do my best to soldier through. So let's just get it started. Give us a little bit of intro uh, about yourselves and, and maybe even just a little bit of background on your own mental health challenges and journeys. Sure. Do you want to kick off? Yep. Uh, I'm 44 years old, been married to my gorgeous wife here for nearly 26 years. And so we started life as a, as a married couple and as parents very young, as, as you know, and um, at, at 18 yep at 18 mm. and um so I, I guess you know that's our that's a bit of our story but that's a lot of pressure on any 18 year old um and uh, and how you deal with those things so interestingly i guess when we talk to mental health my uh, mother has suffered with that and probably at around the age 20 i um i sought some help because i just wasn't dealing with things and uh, very well at that time. So um, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I live with mental health challenges today. I manage that mainly through uh, through medication and and sometimes some counselling. Is that a result of, of genetics, hereditary issues? Is that a result of, of life and life pressures? I've never really known, but, uh, but I do know that, that I can manage it um, through those mechanisms and, and, and manage it well. Yeah. Yeah. That's something really important is that, you know, even someone like yourself, who's been described as, as very put together and even recently described as the Ken to mum's Barbie, um, <laughs> you know, that, that mental health touches everyone in, in some respect or another, even if it's not directly. So it's, uh, it's pretty important that even people like yourself who, seem to have their life all together very much so can can really be open about their own personal struggles as well yeah i certainly feel really strongly about that um there, I, I guess i had an epiphany at one point where my mother said to me well if i was a, uh, a a diabetic that's something that's out of my control that can be managed through medication would i not take that medication on a daily basis uh, why, why is this any different and and mental health takes many many forms um a chemical imbalance just being one of those and uh and so what's would i be embarrassed about saying i'm a diabetic and therefore have to inject myself with insulin every day or i suffer from mental health issues and therefore i i take some medication every day to to live a a uh, well 
what is a, a normal life, I guess, in some way, shape or form. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Tyler. I really want to just start speaking openly and honestly about those things because sometimes it's in the darkness where it does the most damage. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. True. Um, well, me, I'm 44 as well. And um, Nick's done that, that first part of the intro for me. Um, I, I did, after you were born, I was diagnosed with um, postnatal depression. I think uh, you were at the age of about eight months from memory. It's a while ago. And through that process, I, I uh, did go and see my GP. They put me on a, a, a similar to what they call now a mental health plan. Um, and I was uh, medicated, I think, for approximately about six months. I was taking medication just to help me get through that. Seeing a professional talking through some of the issues and the, the thoughts and feelings I had at the time that I was sort of struggling with and, and challenged on and and other than that yeah I've um I've watched the ups and downs of people around me people I love go through different types of depression so that's sort of sort of my involvement around around any mental health issues I suppose yeah okay so I mean as I was growing up it's something I've touched on in previous episodes I was always you know sort of a shy kid I'd get my younger brother to introduce me to other kids our age and all that sort of thing. And was there anything like that that you noticed at the time while I was growing up that could have indicated to you that I was more susceptible to mental health challenges than perhaps some others? Not particularly. Um, in reflection, as you are sort of older, more in, in late teenage years, I would say, yes, there are things that I do look back at and I can identify they were possible um, little little triggers that were starting to pop up. Um, but when you were a young child, no, you were really, you were pleasant, you were happy. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't say for me there was any real identifiers. No, and that that's probably part of the biggest challenge around mental health isn't it is that it doesn't discriminate um you know because somebody has a certain character trait or a certain does that does that is that an indicator and 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 you don't know what you don't know um so no you you were you were a happy kid um you're right later on you you were a little bit more withdrawn but then that's kind of what is is considered to be normal in teenage years and so how do you identify those things um, is, is very, very difficult, like I said, for probably those two reasons. One, a lot of the behaviours are considered uh, normal, whether that whether we agree with that or not, you know, but that's what, what people seem to think. Oh, you know, that the, the, the classic, you know, one word, one syllable answer from a teenager when you ask a question about how their day was. Um, but, uh, and the other is that it just doesn't discriminate. As you said, I'm, I guess I'd, I'd consider myself a highly functioning highly successful person that suffers from happens to suffer from mental health but has learned to manage that most people wouldn't know that um and so trying to read between the lines is as a parent is really challenging really challenging until you're able to actually identify something or they bring actually come to you and say listen i'm, I'm really struggling with this yeah and, and that's you know that's something that I'm trying to work on through what we're doing at the millennial MySpace movement is just opening up those conversations more because, you know, just saying that they're just being a teenager is not good enough anymore. 
No. There's there's too many kids dying. It's it's suicide is still the leading cause of death for people under the age of 25, and that's just a, a stat that needs to change, um, because you know so many kids are struggling and don't know how to talk to their parents, and their parents just think they're being teenagers, mm. and it's something we need to work on as as a community, as a, as a as a race, is how do we talk to people that might be struggling if they're not struggling and they are just just being a teenager, that's great. That's the best case scenario. But if they're struggling, we need to know and we need to help. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have to feel safe and confident in that. You know, and, and I think that comes about from what you're trying to do and what we're doing here. And that is that, you know, this is not shameful. This is not uh, something that you're weak. It, mm. It's that it's something that you're dealing with and um, and that that's okay to, to talk about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so much of that comes down to not just, you know, we're not just trying to make the kids feel comfortable to talk about it, but we're trying to create a a space where parents also feel comfortable to approach their kids about it. Because that's, you know, it, it's a lot in the scheme of things. Parents have a lot more mental maturity that they can use to approach that conversation than kids do. Kids are kids and they, they're going to struggle to talk about things that are uncomfortable. It's a, it's a parent's job and a parent's role to know when their kid's uncomfortable and, and to to have that, to create that safe space where we can all share. Mm. So, so the so relationship between, you know, parents and, and their kids is, is critically important, right, about uh, openness, about um, trust and safety and having that relationship where they feel even uh, safe enough to be able to to open up even when that uh, that question comes mm -hmm. yeah yep, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. and and it's a it's a thing that is changing slowly but it's it still got a long way to go you know yeah. when when kids are upset we're still in this stigma of you being a sook you'll be all right and that's something that needs to change from a young age if a kid's upset showing the genuine care of why your kid's upset what's going on and as mm -hmm. they get older they're going to have more and more reasons to be upset it's a scary world yeah. and just really being able to dig in and have those serious conversations with your kids i think is is incredibly important yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. i think the language that the parents use and i can it's it's funny when you look back and you're you know around other people now and some of the language i hear parents use and, and even reflecting back on some of the things i used to say and how i would say them i definitely would say things differently now so instead of you know, you jumping in the car and me saying, oh, how was your day? And I'd get good, something as simple as turning it around as as phrasing it as tell me about your day. Tell me what things happened today. Um, you know, just quizzing a little bit more, but doing it with the authenticity that you're genuinely interested in your child, that you're investing in your child um, can automatically cement the care and concern in their daily life, you know, not just about, I think sometimes young adolescents just uh, assume that the parents just care about what they want for their future. You know, my parents only talk about what do I want in the future. It's like, well, no, every day needs to matter. Every day needs to count. Every day needs to be important. And that's what parents need to, I would say, that parents should consider investing in, not just thinking about investing in their future. You, you have to invest in every day. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, every, everyone knows teenagers can be difficult. It's a, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's just a, a difficult time. Teenagers are going through a lot in those years in terms of puberty and hormones and school pressure, everything. They're going through a lot. So teenagers can be difficult, 
Um, but it's a, you're right. It's about creating that relationship where the 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 child feels comfortable to tell you what's going on in their life. Mm, yeah. mm. And even sharing. I think from a parent to a child, sharing as they get older, you know, age appropriateness is obviously important. But as they get older, you know, we've never hidden from you boys about your your dad's um, mental health status. We've never hidden from you boys that he does uh, take medication, um, that we go to counselling, whether it's individually or, or um, as, as a couple. We've never hidden those things from you boys because we wanted that to be a part of our normal openly with you boys, you know, that that we do that. That's something we do to keep ourselves on track and for us to cope with the challenges that life throws at us. Just because you're an, an adult and on the outside appear successful, it doesn't mean that you need help and assistance and coaching through the challenges. Once you're an adult, if that makes sense, you still require that assistance. Yeah. So looking back on my some of my later years so not so much when I was really young but more in those teenage years Mm -hmm. looking back on it with a bit of retrospectiveness do you notice anything going back through those memories that might have been an indicator or or I suppose leading up to whatever you think was the the first example that I was struggling with mental health Mm, I think for me was the changes in you once you, um, the first time I saw anything was definitely uh, when you broke your leg. And after the first week, you know, you had to be in the, the full leg cast all the way up to the hip. You couldn't bend, you couldn't walk, couldn't do anything. You, well, I think you were 14 at the time. And and just seeing the impact that on, had on you, that you, one, couldn't socialise with your friends, identifying the level of dependency you had on that, which is you know, that's basically a normal thing. So I was sort of expecting that. But just you having this overwhelming feeling of of sadness and you communicating mm. that to me and, and just not even knowing why you were crying. You said, I don't know why I'm crying. And I said, well, I understand. You, you can't move around. You basically had to lay on the lounge for those first two weeks. You were, weren't meant to move. And that was a lot to take on as a 14-year-old. Uh, and then trying to integrate you back into school and work around those things, not getting to mix and mingle with your friends as much, no sport, none of that. And that was, I think, for a period of 10 weeks, that was a long time. Mm. Um, That's the first time that I saw, but I've got to be honest, I just sort of put it down to it being situational. I didn't really see it as, oh, there could be something here. Maybe I should be a little bit more on toe about this and, and... and have further conversations. I mean, I remember having a brief chat with you about, you know, your dad sometimes feels flat and down as well. And and we work through that. We talk through that. But yeah, I didn't really play it up to be anything other than that. And then I'd say the next time would be when you were um, in university for that first year. Towards the end, there was mood changes like I had never seen before. Um, And you were very distant, very short. I would come into your room and sit on the end of the bed and you did not want to converse with me in any way, shape or form. And I wasn't used to that. We'd no, always had a good relationship. Yeah. That, that was unusual. We'd always had quite a good open relationship. And I remember getting upset and going and talking to your dad about it because it was bothering me that you weren't wanting to talk to me. I thought it was something I had done. And if I inquired, that made you more upset and frustrated with me. So, yeah, going through that. I think was definitely an indicator at that period when you were about 18 years old where I thought, yeah, okay, I think I think we need to talk about getting some help. 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, we, we've we've shared in, in other times and, and places about you know some of my um, my my regrets on maybe not being present, um, being so focused on career and other things, and not having a good balance in those things. So. Um, so, you know, for me, it was, you know, Ty was in his room playing computer games. You know, you used to immerse yourself in that. You, you stopped reading and, and just essentially just played computer games. And, uh, you know, probably the guilty part that kicks in is go, well, what, you know, what didn't I do uh, or that, that helped contribute to this or not identify it sooner? You know, they're the hard things to, to accept and to look back on. Yeah. And I, I guess on the back of that, what was probably the the first time that you were concerned for my mental health? So not not just noticing that I was struggling more, but that the first time you you started to worry about where I was actually at. I have to say, for me, when you were cutting, the first time I realised you had been cutting yourself. Yeah. That's when I had an overwhelming feeling. It's like I just had a a rush of heat from my head all the way down my feet. Mm just going, well, how the hell, how did we get here? This is, it just sort of smacked me like a, a ball in the face of, I don't know what to do here. Well, mm. well, well I haven't dealt with this before. Um, I'm your mum. I'm meant to be able to help you. Um, you're not coping. So what what do I do? Yeah, that, that was it. It was when identifying that you were hurting yourself physically, obviously expressing outwardly of what was going on internally. Mm. And that's when I realised, yeah, we need we need some serious help here. Yeah. Yeah, very much the same for me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And and neither of you had sort of been around or experienced anyone expressing self harm before? Not directly. No. I mean you, you, you hear about it a lot or you see it in you know in media or, or, or T V and those sorts of things, but but no, not not directly. No. So was that something to hard to come to terms with that I was self harming and and why and what's the purpose and that sort of thing? Yeah, really, really difficult because you, yeah, you, because unless you've you've been there, you don't understand it. You know, well, why why are you doing this? Come and talk to me, or you would share that it just it just gave you relief um for that for that period of, of time and uh and and trying to to understand that and and probably the important part there is that you don't you don't have to understand it you know it's the it's about being there finding a way to help which is which is probably the most difficult thing mm. uh in this whole journey that we that we went through with you is is but what, what can i do it's that feeling of helplessness mm. yeah um you know, because and and guilt to a point. You go, you know, what did I do or not do that's caused this or contributed to this? And then you add that to the fact that, and now I don't even know what to do. I just feel so helpless and scared because it's very difficult to be there twenty four seven. So that that was tough. That was really tough. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously, not long after that started, I uh, I ended up in hospital. I was admitted to the psychiatric ward at Box Hill probably two weeks or so after that. Um, through that period, Jenna and I moved back to your house for a bit to keep okay. a bit of a closer eye on me. And, yeah, eventually I, I broke down completely and, and uh, you guys had me admitted to hospital. Did you think 
at any point that it would come to that, or did it just get too bad that that was the only option left? Oh, this is, I'll probably let your mum talk to that because this is one of the things that I love about her so much is that tiger mum, you know, she, she just said, well, everything stops in my life until my, until my boy's right. And so she went on a hunt for, for that help, didn't you? Yeah, it was, um, it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. Very overwhelming. Yeah. So I reflect back. Sorry. Um, no, go ahead. It was, it was very overwhelming because I just, I made a, a quite a few phone calls and I think what I wasn't expecting was people for me. What I felt on the other end of the phone call, there was no, there was no sense of panic them there were I mean and mm. I know they're trained and I get all of that but there was no urgency there was no concern mm. on that level um and the clinical approach that these people are trained to have I understand why they need that but as a parent who is in absolute despair and distress and overwhelmed with with the concern they need they need to hear from someone on the other end that they can relate, they understand what that person is going through and they are there to help. They are there to do whatever they can to put them in touch with the resources and will assist them with this. That That's what they do. They hear this every day and they will help us find a plan to, to help you get through this. Um, not having someone on the other end that's experienced it and could empathise was really hard to deal with um, because I just felt so alone, even more so. And trying to get someone to understand what I felt was the absolute urgency, I think had to be the biggest issue for me. I just felt like everyone was like, well, if you ring back in a few weeks or, you know, um, it, it was a little bit, it, it definitely wasn't what I was expecting. You see all the advertisements, all the campaigns for all these, you know, not-for-profits and all the rest. I can tell you I rang all of them. And I I still to date, that whole experience was incredibly hard to work through because I just found it so overwhelming to be so alone. And thank God you had you had your wife, um, you know, Jen, your fiancé at the time. You had her there with you. You had us. It breaks my heart to think about the amount of people out there that don't have someone that's advocating for them. They don't have someone that's fighting for their life because they yeah. can't stay. Yeah, that's you know? something that makes me so passionate about what we're doing at the Millennial Myspace movement is mm-hmm. as as maybe dark and as dire as, as my situation got at times, there are a whole lot of people who don't have half the support I have. And yeah. that's that's what we're trying to create. It's just, just an area where people can get some of that because I, I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, the, the organizations that are trying to, to have an impact here, um, I'm, I'm a big supporter of, but it's not yet working enough. Um, and I'm not, I'm not wanting to talk down about them at all, but, but our personal experience and the experience of some people that I've spoken to going through similar things is that trying to navigate your way through that to get help and, and support to what to do 
to help your loved one, be that your son, your daughter, or whoever it may be, was felt impossible at the time, even though there's there's these organisations out there that you can pick up the phone and ring, it it didn't it didn't feel helpful and and that contributed to the feeling of desperation you know far out these these guys are supposed to be where you go when you need this help and yet i still don't feel like we've we've got that and and i don't know whether that's a funding issue a training issue or or both of those things you know but it's a deeply personal thing when you you turn up to a hospital or one of these places and you feel like you're you're treated as though you're coming in with a broken arm you know um it's not that it's it's much different and when they look at you and say well well has he tried to kill himself yet and you go well what's that got to do with it what do we have to wait until he's mm. he's he's being resuscitated or he's succeeded or you know before we can actually get help and so that was really frustrating and 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 really angering <laughs> you know mm, mm. the the level of resource that I was being offered i think it took about seven or eight phone calls and towards the end I did start to get quite firm and um and blunt and just actually one of them one of them I said I'll do I'll I'll come and sit down at the front of your office I'll just come and sit there and wait until someone sees me whatever it takes just to force my way in the door yeah so I think that's what I mean about you know with your mum and what I loved about what she did there is that what that's what it took you know, it wasn't like you pick up the phone and somebody's immediately there to help you. You had to fight tooth and nail to get the help. And, and uh, but, but if that's what you have to do, then that's what you have to do and that's what you get done, you know. Yeah, yeah. So getting back to uh, the whole uh, admission to hospital, what were your thought processes around me going to hospital? Had you guys ever, I mean, I, I know personally neither of you have ever been to a psychiatric ward, but did you know at all what to expect or anything? Like what were you thinking when you were having me admitted to hospital? It was mixed. It was, it was a mixture of things, but it was, all, but it was relief mainly because um, leading up to that point, was it then or, or after, immediately after? I can't quite remember, but, you know, we spent we 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 made a commitment that you weren't going to be alone and so whether that was one of us working from home all day we were fortunate enough to be able to do that we'd change and swap that just to make sure we were around you so that when you're in those deep places dark places that you know you didn't you didn't end up committing suicide or those sorts of things um so but but putting having that it, it kind of felt uh, for me like relief. Okay, he's somewhere where he's getting help. You had to participate in daily um, counselling and discussion sessions. Was all part of it. There was people around. There wasn't things there that you could harm yourself with. So it it, it actually felt finally like okay, not great, but boy oh boy, am I glad he's he's there because I feel like he's mm. safe. Mm. I could, yeah, I, I remember feeling relief um obviously you'll remember we had to sit in the uh, emergency department you jenna and myself and with you for six and a half seven hours waiting for a bed that's what we were told apparently um they didn't have any beds so the next resort is we have to go to the emergency department and wait until they have one and i believe is it after 24 hours um they have to provide one yep that's right that yeah that for me was like you're joking right i Hey, if, if we're standing in emergency and and the state you were in, you were very agitated, you were very distressed, your anxiety levels were 
off the chart. If you decided that you were going to walk out that door and run off or do something, there's no way I could have physically stopped you. There's just no way. And that was that was distressing enough. But then when we had to um, take you around and admit you, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you only go off what you see on the TV, really. No one No one knows what it's going to be like when you walk in that door. My first impressions were like, okay, this is interesting. Um, just get you there. I just needed to get you there and know that there were going to be professionals watching over you, looking looking over you, and and I'll feel better. I remember thinking this this is what you need for you, and and that's that's what we have to do. And and Jen, bless her, she's so bloody strong. And we got in there and walked around. They did a bit of an intro, showed you a room. And I just remember you standing there looking out the window and it just hit me. I just thought, I can't walk out of here. I can't leave you there. How do I? Yeah, it was hard. How do I leave my baby? But you have to. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that was the Very thing, difficult. wasn't it? Is that, um, you know, it, yeah, that's hard, but. That's where that sense of relief also was that you, mm. were, you were safe. This was the best possible thing we could do at that point in time for you. Mm. Yeah. What, what do you think through that whole experience? I, I was in hospital for about two weeks, as I've mentioned previously. Yeah. Through that whole two weeks, what do you think was the most challenging thing with me being in there? Leaving you. Every day leaving you. I wanted to stay there. I wanted to stay in the car park out the front. I just wanted to be close. I wasn't sure. I was absolutely scared you weren't going to get better. Mm. You know, some of those beautiful souls that are in there, some of them were there three, four, five times, you know. They just keep coming back and they might get help while they're in there, but then when they get out, that just shows that we need to do more in this country because it's so repetitive. It's like a it's like a revolving door for a lot of them. And, and hearing that from the nurses and the doctors and professionals, that was just overwhelming to me because I just remember thinking, isn't that a sign we need to do more? That's that's not okay. We can't just keep accepting that, oh, well, they'll be back in three months. That's a sign we're failing these humans. They need us to do more. So, yeah, I think the hardest thing was just hoping and praying that you were going to, you were going to, get something out of it that was going to be able to get you on a right path and get good help. And then, yeah, the, the hardest part was just every day having to leave. I just wanted to, even if I could just be off in the background somewhere, just close by in case you needed me. Because I think from memory it was 19.8 kilometres or something. And I used to think about that when I'd drive there. If you had if they rang me or you rang me and I needed to get there, I knew it took about, I think it was about 19 minutes. And I just remember counting, counting it down, watching the, the kilometres, looking at the time, getting there. That, that had to be the hardest thing is just wanting to know if you being there was the right thing. Are we failing you even further by having you there? Are you actually going to get help? Is that the right place? Should, should I have kept looking for somewhere else? just so many questions you go through your head as a parent in that circumstance I imagine all parents must yeah uh, see I, I didn't I was very comfortable that you were you were there not not happy but that you know you're there but 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 comfortable that you were as safe as you could be um the biggest fear for me was that is this is this Tyler's life 
now? Is this going to work? Uh, is this going to help him? Um, how long is he going to be there for? All of those mm. sorts of things. So, but I, but I was happy, or, or I, don't, I don't know if happy is the right word, but but I was satisfied that this was the best thing for you, and that's what helped me. I guess I was a bit pragmatic about it in that sense. And obviously, while I was in hospital, I did a lot of self sabotage as far as uh, you know, contacting people that weren't great for my own mental health. And, and then obviously, as I've spoken about in the last episode with Jenna, trying my absolute best to get rid of her as well. What was that like watching me sort of burn my life down around me? Yeah, again, difficult because you, you, you try and have the conversations. I mean, we would come and see you every day and, um, you know, we'd say, mate, you, you've got to, these are some of the behaviours that you need to, you need to, to cut out of your life. But saying it to, to somebody and them accepting or un, even understanding it or believing it is another thing. And, and that's the frustrating part about it is you don't see things the same when you're, you're, you're in the depths of despair and, and, and suffering from those, from, from those mental health issues. So that, that's horrible to watch because, again, it's a feeling of helplessness. I think that's what makes this, this, this illness or this, this situation so challenging is that no two cases are the same and, uh, and, and there's no one silver bullet to mm. solve it. And, mm. uh, and, and so what, what do you do? Then I think the answer is you just don't give up. As hard as it is, as difficult as that is, as helpless as it may feel, you just have to keep going in terms of the support and the guidance uh, mm. that, that you give. You just have to. You cannot give up. Yeah, yeah. I think as much love as you can, there's always one more thing you can try, one more thing you can say, one more thing you can express and show. Um and, you know, some of the things you would say, I, I in my head I definitely was thinking, oh, no, you shouldn't be doing that, honey. Don't do that, darling. But it just wasn't going to make a difference for you to hear that from me. I just would remind you how much I loved you and, and we got you. You know, at times when you feel like you can't do this, we got you. We're, we're there, you know. And I just remember telling myself to just keep reflecting on the good and the positive Um and just try not to overwhelm you with decisions that I knew at some point you were going to have to make for yourself because you were very overwhelmed and I didn't want to increase that anxiety so you would, you know, obviously make a permanent decision for a temporary situation. So for me it was just about just about the love, the acceptance, yeah. But I think it also goes back to what we said earlier in our conversation, and, and it's about the relationship and the trust that you have, because if we didn't have that, then mm. anything we did or said would be just water off a duck's back. I, I think the fact that we had the love, loving relationship that we did um, was just enough of an anchor for you to to trust, even though you didn't maybe believe or accept or whatever, but there was still something that there was a, tr a level of trust there that you knew we had your best interests at heart. Mm. So it starts early. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when you get to that point, it's it's sort of too late to build that out of yes. nowhere. Yeah, correct. Correct. So I, I, I think that's a massive thing for parents out there is that it starts early. Um, don't allow your kids to just bury their face in iPads and, 
mm. and television and, and computer games. You know, you, you have to engage with them mm. because it may not prevent this from happening, but, but geez, it, it's going to make a huge difference if and when you have to go through it, mm. that you've got that connection there because that was probably the one thing that, that I was confident in was that you knew how much we loved you. We had a trusting, loving relationship and uh, and that was, I, I think, one of the the anchors that just held on long enough to pull you through. Yeah. So in terms of how you guys dealt with that whole experience while I was in hospital, while I was going through all this, while I was, um, you know, quite literally telling you I didn't want to be here anymore, how did your own mental health struggle, how did you deal with that? How did you keep yourselves afloat? What was the, the sort of the dynamic of the battle you guys were going through on the side of, of my own battle? I, I probably, um, you know, part of my challenge mentally is is the, you know, the old head in the sand kind of scenario. So when it's not there in, in front of me all day, every day, I, you know, I'm just trying to get on with things and because everybody's dealing with their own baggage, you know. And so I think... For me, it was it was just making sure I tried to stay as present as I could be when I needed to be, to be there for you. And then at other times, it was just about getting on and making sure that we took care of business in other areas. I'm not just talking about the company, but just just life. And mm. and so, you know, I have a, a bit of a skill in that area, I guess. Whereas your mum was was probably very different, and not to put words in your mouth, but it mm. it affected her emotionally in in a very significant way. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I um, I learnt a little bit of a, a talent years ago when I get flat or feel a bit down myself, that that's when I most should turn to people and invest in other people because it, it takes me away from what I'm dealing with myself and forces me to look at other people. And I remember just being super worried about Jen. My heart was breaking for you and what you were going through and it was breaking for Jen as strong as she was. I could see her heart breaking and she's like a daughter to me and to watch both of you go through it was heartbreaking. So while I was there with you at the hospital or, or my heart and head was investing in you and, and putting and focusing and being present with you when it wasn't there, I just remember feeling an obligation, not in a bad way, an obligation out of, out of pure love for her of just just trying to make sure she was doing okay and uh, she was staying above water, you know, that sort of sort of place for, for where she was at, trying to be around her as much as I could but not smother her as well. I wanted her to know that we've got her too, you know. I know we're not her parents but I didn't want her to feel alone. And then, you know, then you go to work and you have to put on that lovely mask and be positive for all the other people that, that rely you to uplift them and lead them. But, yeah, I don't think there would have been a – I definitely don't think there was was a day that I wasn't breaking down on my own in the shower, just trying to get it out. It was heavy. I just remember it feeling really heavy and, and just the overwhelming fear that what if I didn't do enough? What if I didn't say that to you? Maybe I should have done that. Maybe – and I just wanted to message you all the time, check up on you. Um, I had to trust and have faith in the doctors and where you were. But yeah, it was a really, it was a really um, confronting, I think, time. I didn't really want to talk hugely um, in our in our circle as much. Um, 
my my, my twin sister, um, bless her, she was beautiful. She was checking in on me and supporting me. Um, one of my good close girlfriends, Mary, um, she was just fantastic. You know, no one poked or prodded to get more information, that sort of thing. And then just I, I worried about everyone around me, I think, as well. You know, I worried about your dad and how, how this was going to affect him with his mental stability because he's hard on himself you know and and who's his support network I remember feeling bad for him because I felt like his family weren't supporting him enough and they were well aware of what was happening and that concerned me because I thought well yeah he's got me but there should be you know uh, some other people just even touching base and checking in and saying you know how made it how how are you mate how you going how you coping how's Tyler because those little things, you know, the are you okay day, it is so true. Someone caring, concerning, reaching out, checking in, that can make the difference between you taking a deep breath in and allowing yourself permission to have some perspective and relax or you sitting there in judgment and failure and fear. So, yeah, it was a, it was a tough time and no doubt we're all stronger for it. Absolutely we are. But, yeah, I don't think I necessarily really, in, even in the, all this time, have really processed a lot of it. I don't think I've maybe even let myself go there 100%. It still hits a lot of nerves, to be honest. You may have been able to tell. Mm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's a lot. And, you know, in terms of even uh, conversing with, for those who don't know, I have two younger brothers you know, also having to support them while I was going through this too. What was that like as, as parents? That was tough because, yeah, you, you worry, you don't want to hide anything from them. They were old enough to know. Obviously, they were around it. They were being influenced by it regardless. So just being open and honest with them, just expressing that if they, you know, wanted to talk. I mean, your, your younger brother, um, I would say, he struggled a lot. He didn't quite know how to cope with it. At first, he wasn't even sure if he wanted to go and visit you in the hospital. I think he was really worried and fearful of what he was going to see and and how you were. You know, it's, it's the funny thing, isn't it? Movies give you insight, but they also instill fear to a certain degree with certain circumstances. So I, it really, um, it did scare scare Kai I think a lot to mm. consider that that's where his brother was you know he always looked up to you and and it hit him hard Braden has always been quite sort of mature in his approach with most things and he was you know well mm. well um I, I think sort of stable in his processing of what was going yep. on yep. you know um he knew from each stage where you were at what was happening so, yeah, it was more about, I think, just communicating and, and making sure that that the boys knew the importance of rallying around you. You know, we're a tribe um, and and no one, no one goes home without us all together and all connected and all engaged. And that's not only a responsibility, but but it is an obligation when you when you say you love someone. I personally feel is there's nothing that you can't do to fight for them you know and that's what family is whether it's it's genetic family or chosen family you would do anything for them so um yeah and I'm proud of the way that the boys just 
cared and concerned over you and, and, and loved you through that as well. They were beautiful. There wasn't too much that was asked of them, but they were open and honest in there when, when needed, you know? Mm. And then obviously, you know, once I, once I was discharged from hospital, I came back and continued to live with you guys for a little while, mm-hmm. just while I was getting back on my feet and getting my head back on straight. What were, what were some of the struggles with that in terms of, you know, having to deal with that and be face to face with that on a daily basis? The feeling of, of um, yeah, that same word keeps coming to, to, to mind is the helplessness because, you, you know, you, I'd leave for the day, maybe your mum would stay home, I'd come home and you're still on the lounge doing nothing and you, you feel like you want to grab, grab them and shake them and say, you know, snap out of this, you've got to help yourself. Yeah. Um, so, but you know that you can't—they can't see through it at that mm. point in time. You know because they can't face anything of reality in some respects. And so, patience is a mm. is a big one. Is is just having the patience to to be there, love them, support them, but continue to help, try to motivate them to do something. You know, I think there was some days I go, you know, at least just get up and have a shower. You might start there. You know. Mm. Um, so that was the hardest part, I think, is is again just feeling like oh, helplessness. What am I? What, what can I do here to help them snap out of this? But but you can't. Um, mm. And and I wish again there was. I wish there was that silver bullet, but it, it, there just isn't. Um, did we get it all right? I'm not saying we did, and I'm not saying this is the mm. only thing. I guess this is just our experience and what we went through, and and what we did in the end was to to just continue to love, support, encourage, uh, and be present with you, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was just um, trying to motivate you for certain little things. Like mm. as your, your dad said, you know, get you up and have a shower. I remember um, it was a big day. I got up early to get some work done, went in and woke you up. You didn't want to get out of bed. You know, once again, that sort of fear, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Am I going to push mm. you over the edge mm. if I bug you? Um, yeah, that's true. But then, well, if you don't get up and do something that's not healthy for you, right, you've got to eat healthy. And so, you know, even little things like I truly believe us having the animals, the dogs, was yeah. absolutely beneficial for you going through that, um, especially Hodge, the English bull, uh, bull terrier. He was so synced with your mental state that it still impresses me today when I look back and when I think back how in touch he was with you. He just picked up on it. Like he just knew that you needed him to to smother you and, and love on you and he just had the most beautiful heart, like the way he would call, sort of crawl into your neck and cuddle you. It was just beautiful. But I could use him as leverage to say, well, Tyler, get up and take Hodge outside for me. He needs to do a wee. Take him out the back for me, please. So that that helped me because it wasn't me telling you you had to do something. You wanted to do something for the dog. So it sort of took me out of it to a certain degree. So that was that was a good motivator you know go down take hodgie down for a walk and get the get the mail that that was helpful but yeah i think trying to sort of schedule the all our commitments all our obligations existing and keep those running 
stay on tap with the energy um, to keep you in the best mindset that you could be across the appointments, the people that were coming and visiting the house every day, which I think was for the first week and then it went to every second day after that for a couple of weeks um, and be involved or not. You know, I had to sort of float around. Do you want me to sit in with the psychologist mm. or do I just go and hang out and study, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we I still look back and just think, wow, how fortunate and blessed we are that we've, we could afford to do that. I know a lot of families or even single parent families, they, they don't have that option. That's the sad reality. So we were very, very blessed that we could do that. Um, and, 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 uh, I suppose allow ourselves to be present in that time. Yeah. It's been a hell of a journey. Yeah. It certainly has, but, uh, but we're on a good path now and it feels, yeah amazing to be sitting back and watching mm. who you are who you're becoming knowing that you still struggle with stuff yeah. um but that you're learning tools to deal with that mm. Mm. and to manage that yeah it's a pretty powerful testament and that's what i love is that if anyone through our journeys and travels um says any anything or referring or reflecting on on someone they know and love and care for around mental health I I very proudly uh, let them know that it's it, I can relate and and I empathise, um, and there are definitely avenues that they can they can get on a good path. Um, and if you haven't been through it, you don't you don't know what to look for. You don't know who to talk to. You don't know what's even what's even out there for you. It's not like our local councils publicise or have campaigns advising you. You've got to go looking for it. And even then when you ring up, they will tell you that you have to call another number. So it's an absolute minefield. But to have a resource like what you're creating here is is without a doubt going to be able to impact and save lives. I have no doubt about that. So it's it's been a, a beautiful journey up to this point and I have no doubt it will continue to be. So Awesome. So, I mean, throughout this whole experience, what would you say is the biggest thing that you've learned about mental health, about managing mental health, all that sort of stuff. What's the biggest thing for both of you that you've really taken on board from the whole experience up to this point? That it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, that it's not going to be easy, I, th I think. And that's what's scary about it. But knowing that, you know, others have gone through it, are going through it, and that by keeping on, keeping on, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is help there. Uh, the challenge is finding it and fighting through the uh, the red tape to, to get to it because once we found it, that's when things really did start to take a turn for the better. So I think it's, it's, it's be there, be present, love and support and, uh, and keep fighting. I would say for me, it's definitely about having the belief to be brave enough so be brave enough to to fight no matter what it takes don't worry about what people say and think I didn't I didn't care at all all that mattered was was you and getting you help be brave enough to tell those closest to you so you can have a support network yourself as parents it's it's tough as a carer as a loved one of someone going through this be brave enough to be vulnerable 
and say, hey, we're going through something at the moment and I am I am bloody scared that something bad is going to happen here. I'm scared that I'm not going to be enough to, to help him and to get him on the right path. So, yeah, I would say just be brave in, in your truth because that's the only way that we're going to start to really allow the permission for people to talk about this more, I think. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think any parents listening who are going through something similar or are concerned about something similar can take a lot out of that. It's that it's hard, but it's not as complicated as you think. <laughs> yeah. Was there, I think you spoke a little bit about this. Was there something that for you that stands out that was the difference between, you know, you wanting to, to not stay where you were, nobody wants to stay there, but, but there was the, the, something that actually kept you going that was that we did not really (laughs) not really um it it was not much was keeping me going as as uh mum was mentioning before most days I didn't even want to get out of bed a lot of the time it just just sort of put myself in a position where I wanted to get out of bed you know whether it was to get up and cuddle the dog or even if it was something as as basic human requirement as I'm hungry so I'm going to have to get up (laughs) yeah they were just that you know I think more of the reason why I wasn't able to do anything permanent was really just a a lack of opportunity for the most part I think if the opportunity was there I would have taken it but I was lucky in in the terms of you guys were pretty good at keeping an eye on me and I was really well supported, so it wasn't very often that I had the opportunity to sink down into that. Yeah, and I think that's the point I'm I, I'm trying to make is that it's not it's it's not easy. You know, that's what makes this thing so damn difficult because everything we did, and and that answer of yours kind of sums it up, doesn't it? It was nothing that we did, um, but then it was everything that we did at the same time mm. because, as you said, it was just being there that was going to prevent you in that moment from taking an opportunity. And, and so that's my advice to to anyone that's going through this or supporting somebody through this is you've got to be there. You just have to be there. Mm-hmm. And if you need to rally friends, family, whatever, do it. Don't be don't be too proud to say, hey, I'm going to need some help here. Can I yeah. call can I call on you to um, come over on the weekend and, and just give me three, four hours grace so I can go and get some fresh vegetables and fruit and um call on those because if you don't give people the opportunity to support you and to be on your tribe then that's you that you can't say I didn't have that support if they if they don't know what you're going through then you can't be upset with not having the support and the help you know my issue was that I was crying out for it I was calling for it and there's only certain people that stepped up and the others I don't have a lot to do with. That's the reality. Those that did, I'll forever be grateful, forever. Even if it was just a, a phone call, even if it was just listening to me cry on the other end of the phone, mm. that all helped me do what I needed to do to be there for you. So, yeah, yeah I think people calling out and asking for help and doing everything but not necessarily one thing, you know. Yeah, that's, that's the whole thing. Just talk about it, isn't it? Mm, yeah absolutely yeah okay well look we've been going for a fair while i don't want to keep you too much longer at the end of every episode i just do uh i like to do a little fast five questions just help the audience get to know you a little bit better they're 
not directed at anything and they're just random they're a bit of fun um so what we'll do is i'll just ask you a question and then you can both give me the first answer that comes to your head all right cool go for it uh favorite sports team hawthorne 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 hawks afl yeah yes yes uh favorite music act artist whatever well mine's alicia keys Oh, I don't know. I guess it depends if it's live or not, but live, probably John Butler. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Favourite food? <gasps> Seafood. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite country in the world? Ooh. Oh, so many country I don't really have one I've got to be honest I don't have a favorite I love we we I just love to travel I love Ooh, yeah. I love oh. different countries for different reasons and we've been so blessed to visit so many of them okay Finland. Cool. cop out answer next one but, yeah, Finland. yeah Finland is for me I think I love yeah. I love all of Finland yeah 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 okay okay and and last one uh what's your happy place the place you're most comfortable and happy in the world oh, at home with all my kids around and granddaughter and daughter-in-law, partners, all of us together as a family. Um, that includes my, my girlfriends as well. Seafood, wine, cheese, and Alicia Keys playing. That's my happy place. <laughs> <laughs> What's yours? Jeez, oh, you're going to call me a copy out again because – I could be uh, racing around Phillip Island at stupid speeds. That's pretty. That's one of them. Certainly around my family, absolutely, uh, and cycling. 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 Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's another episode of the Millennial Mindspace podcast done. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, I know a lot of our audience are going to get a lot out of it. So, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Thank you. Proud of you. Love you. Yeah, love what you're doing, mate. Love it. So if you want to follow along with anything we're doing at the Millennial Mindspace movement, make sure you check out our website at www.themillennialmindspace.com.au. Check out our social media pages. We're active on Instagram and Facebook, so make sure you throw us a follow there. Give this podcast a like, thumbs up, whatever on whatever podcast streaming service you listen to. And as usual, if anything in this episode has raised any issues or concerns for you or someone you know, please make sure you call Lifeline on 131114. They're great people and they'll help you out with whatever you're going through. Thank you.